John chapter 8. And we're really picking up part two of this sub-series. You know, Jesus is still in Jerusalem. It's immediately following the Feast of Tabernacles. He's in a heated conversation with the Jewish religious elite. And as we've seen over time, there's a crowd listening in. Jesus is just constantly, he's, he's upticking or ramping up his rhetoric. Typically, when you and I ramp up our rhetoric in an argument, it's because we're getting angry, frustrated, and we want to body slam someone. Like we want to hurt someone, right? This is what happens in our marriages where uh, oftentimes we'd just be better off just going to a different room and cooling down. And yet we just got to get that last word out until we run out of breath, you know, kind of deal. Like we, we just are ramping up. I don't believe Jesus ramps up his rhetoric for that reason at all. In fact, I don't think he's trying to harm them. I think he's trying to get their attention. I think he's, it's like when you're trying to get someone's attention and then they won't pay attention and you kind of shake them like, come on, you know, I want you to get this. This is important. And so he's ramping up his rhetoric. We see that he, he turned to a topic that was extremely personal um, and extremely sensitive and serious to the average Jew. This is the topic of heritage, patriarchy, lineage that was so important to a Jew in the first century. This is as I said last week, this is the equivalent of your mama jokes, you know, in the first century, right? If you, you started talking about someone's daddy, someone's lineage, that was like you could cross a line and it would turn physical uh, into a physical altercation. This is where you would go if you really wanted to anger someone. And we, we're going to start to see Jesus take the conversation this way. And because of that, this morning, we are going to see, you know, I was trying to think about this during the week and I I really at this point can't think of enough. This might be my all-time favorite mic drop moment of Jesus Christ in his earthly life right here this morning. We're going to look at in verse 44. You know, you imagine telling a first century elite religious Orthodox Jew who had probably the entire Pentateuch memorized, who had been studying the scriptures probably since age 13, who knew the scriptures in Aramaic, Greek, and Hebrew, who have devoted their life to the study of the scriptures. And he says, you are of your father, the devil. And they would be like, we are the farthest from that. Go say that to the prostitutes down the street. Go say that to the tax collectors. Do you, do you know who I, you know, do you know who I am? And we always say, if you have to, have to ask that question, they don't. <laughs> the person doesn't know who you are. And, I, and you could just see them saying that to Jesus, and it's going to set the tone. It, it, it's going to set the tone for the rest of the conversation, where the tension is going to be so thick from this point forward. It, you're going to have to cut it not with a, a knife, but with a steak knife, a Cutco knife. Didn't you no know Cutco? Okay, really good knives. Really good knives. That's the point. All right. So let's just dive in this morning. Verse 39. <clears throat> Excuse me. Verse 39. Um, It says this, then they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. Now, contextually, we obviously, we just came out of verse 38, but in verse 38, look what he says. He says, I speak what I've seen with my father and you do what you have seen with your father. And what Jesus starts to do until he gets to verse 44 is he he is subtly insinuating that they have a different father than what they think they do. He recognizes they've got a physical father, a physical lineage in Abraham. Uh, in fact, he said that earlier in verse 37. He says, I know you're Abraham's descendants. 
but he's also implying that they have a different father than what they think. And I don't think they quite pick it up at this point. They're like, yeah, our father's Abraham. So what? You know, kind of is, is the idea. We, we know that. We know what our lineage is. We're very proud of our lineage. He's going to just keep working them to the mic drop moment in verse 44 because they're just not getting it. And again, he ramps up, I think, to get their attention. So he's kind of in the middle of criticizing them, although they don't realize that yet. Jesus is talking about a different father than Father Abraham. They just don't get that yet. And what's really interesting, when, they, when they're saying this, we've got to get into the mind of the first century Jew. When they say, my father's Abraham, they're saying, everything's all right with me. It's kind of like, don't worry about me, Jesus. I got my stuff together, right? And really what they're saying is, I'm as good as Abraham. And from this perspective, from the first century Jew, what exactly are they saying here? They're saying, by saying this, I am guaranteed a spot in eternity. I am guaranteed entrance into the kingdom. Why, dear friend, first century Jew, why are you guaranteed? Because I'm a son of Abraham. I'm circumcised. I keep the law. That was the three things that they relied upon. And, and not only that, but when you read rabbinical writings around this time, you know, there was a common thought that Abraham, that his current position is, is seated outside of the gates of Gehenna or the, the gates of hell that we would know, or the gates of torment, that Abraham is just sitting there, I guess, on a lawn chair, you know, right at the entrance of Gehenna. And if any Jew is kind of going that way, he just grabs him and says, oh, no, no, you don't belong here. You belong over here with me. That there was basically, they would teach there was no way if you were a son of Abraham that you could ever not be in the kingdom unless you were just an incredible apostate. That was a, a possibility. So understand what they're saying here is we're in. <laughs> don't worry about us, Jesus. You don't need to be correcting us. We're children of Abraham is the idea. And this is why John the Baptist was so aggressive in his teaching in Matthew 3. This is what they, by the way, needed to repent of. They didn't need to repent of adultery, licentiousness, murder. They weren't doing any of that stuff. What did they need to change their mind about? This, that being a son of Abraham was enough to get them into the kingdom. No, they needed to be a son of God. And that only happened through the new birth when they would put their faith in what the Messiah would do for them. This is what John the Baptist said to the same group or representatives of this group. Do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Like that was their ace card. Boom. We got Abraham. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. What, a, what an, an incredible slight to the might of a first century Jew. But is John the Baptist telling the truth? He's telling the truth. Physical lineage doesn't get you anywhere in the spiritual life. And so Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, all right, let's take what you said and let's use, Jesus uses a first-class condition. Let's, let's assume that what you're saying is true for argument's sake. If that was true, you'd be like your daddy. You, you'd be a chip off the old block. You would do the works of Abraham. And, and not only that, but he uses it in the perfect tense. You would always be doing the works of Abraham. You would kept on doing the works of Abraham all this time. You would have been like Abraham all this time. It's kind of what Jesus is saying. One of the things that we see is Jesus is talking specifically about who he is and how they're relating to him. See, they're rejecting Jesus. They're doing the exact opposite of Jesus. How would, how would Abraham respond to Jesus? That, that's a great question. I think Jesus's audience would say, Abraham would reject you. Jesus is going to tell him later in the conversation not only would Abraham not reject me, but let me tell you, let me let you in on a secret. Abraham's been looking forward to me. 
He's been looking forward to my day. That's what he's going to tell him later. He's saying, if you were of Abraham, you'd be like him. You would be doing the things that he did. If they were truly sons of Abraham, not through lineage only, not through physical heritage, but also through faith, they would have been more like Abraham in the area of what? Response to God's revelation, response to uh, being willing to adjust his actions to the revealed word of God, response to saying, hey, um, I've got the revelation of God. I was wrong on this before. Now that I see the revelation of God, I'm going to change my views. I'm going to adjust my, my thinking. This is how Abraham uh, responded. And this is the one area, if you, if you, if you think about Jesus' conversation, with, this is the one area that they had no family resemblance to Abraham. Abraham was completely different than this crowd in front of Jesus because they would not receive the word of God. They would not receive the messenger of God. And thus they rejected the very message of God. They had their minds made up. And this is what Jesus is going to keep pointing out. Your minds are made up. You won't let any truth penetrate your thinking. And thus you are going to, as he told him earlier, you are going to die in your sin of unbelief. You just won't trust me. And Jesus, again, trying to get their attention, keeps going. So this was seen, by the way, in Abraham's life. We can see this example of how Abraham responded to the Lord. What about his initial call back in Genesis 12? He left Haran, the place of familiarity and family, and he responded to go to a country that God would show him. Now, that's one of the hardest things for me uh, to do in my life, believe it or not, is to drive a car in an area that I'm not familiar, trusting Carrie to navigate me. Now, Carrie's a, Carrie's a great navigator. This is not a criticism of her at all. She tells me what I need to know, but I usually like to know what I need to know three or four directions in advance. And Carrie usually saves them for me one at a time. And I don't know why that stresses me out to no end. It just stresses me out. But imagine being called to go somewhere, this general direction, and just keep going. And as you go, I'll show you where you're going. I'm sorry. I, I don't know if I could do that personally, just my, the way I'm wired, right? It takes an incredible amount of faith and trust. And the person is saying, hey, just get going. Uh, just trust me. And Abraham said, okay. And it says he departed right away. That was how Abraham responded to the word of God. We also see Abraham's response to, the, to God's instruction regarding circumcision for his family. Now, I'm not going to get into any details because we've got little children, but you imagine that uh, instruction come down from heaven. I want you to circumcise yourself and all the males in your family. You're like, serious? Like, really? There's like, there's some other way we can get this accomplished? That's going to hurt. And, and it did. But you know what it says? Abraham immediately responded. Because why? Because it was a revelation from God. He said, ah, maybe this doesn't make sense to me, but God said it. That settles it. Like, I'm in kind of deal. And what about the big one? The big granddaddy of them all that we, we read about in Scripture is Genesis 22, his response to God to kill Isaac. And you get that, you get that instruction, like, what? And it's like, you know, am I hearing wrong? What's going on here? And what does it say in Genesis 22? He rose up early the next morning. I'd have been like, man, I'm going to wait around and see if God tells me a second time. You know, it's like, that just doesn't seem to. But this was Abraham's attitude to the word of God. When God said something, you know, that old saying, when God says jump, you say how high? You don't say, really? You want me to jump? I don't know if that's a good idea for me to jump right now. My legs are... No, God says jump, you jump, right? God says move here, you move here. God says you're wrong in this area, change your thinking, right? Jesus' audience didn't do that. Abraham did that. By the way, 
point of application? How do you respond to the word of God in your own life? Are you, are you constantly juggling your own desires and your own logic and your own manner of evaluation with the clearly revealed word of God, trying to justify why you don't respond to the word of God? I'm not criticizing you. I, I struggle with that as well. There are times where the, the word of God seems to be clearly revealed, and I just have it in my mind that I, uh, you know, I would never say this because it would, you know, I just would never say this, but I do think this. No, I think my way is a little bit better. I, I, I don't think God really meant that. I think this is okay too. And begin to justify and validate and affirm what I'm doing, even though I know it's going against the clearly revealed word of God. You know, if you're heading one direction in life, and God clearly reveals that you're heading the wrong direction, we should stop and adjust and rethink and just be committed to the process that God has established in his word, even if it means we might have to go the long way around. That's the problem with us. We're so convenience-oriented. We're like, well, this is A to B. I'm just doing it. Well, no, God may have you go A to Z, back to X, over to Y, and then circle back around to B. And we just, we're like, well, that's ridiculous. That makes no sense. Why would I do it that way? Here's the encouragement to you. Do it the way God has designed it to be done. And just be okay with that. And trust the process along the way. And get to know your Savior as he holds your hand in what appears to be a zigzag motion. In fact, if you ever looked at Israel's journeys coming out of Egypt, have you ever just mapped that? I encourage you to map that sometime. Just read through that passage uh, in Exodus. Read through where it says they go. Your, your pen is going to look like a connect the dots map. It's going to be going boom, 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 boom. It's going to be zigzag. And you're like, doesn't God know how to take him in a straight line? I think God knows how to take him in a straight line. He had a purpose in taking him in a zigzag motion. He was teaching them. He was training them things. And so it's talking about here, as Jesus is talking about this group, they weren't like their father Abraham in the way they responded to the revelation of God, especially in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus continues to describe the differences. In fact, the big difference is right here. But now you seek to kill me. Abraham didn't do that. <laughs> Abraham wasn't trying to kill Yahweh. He says, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. So in contrast to element, uh, in, in contrast to Abraham, I'm sorry, there's an element of Jesus's audience who right now in this moment, this is what Jesus is bringing out with the present tense. They're seeking to kill him. Now he pointed this out to the group back in chapter seven. This was only a day earlier, even though it seems like, I mean, it's been many days for us, but it's, it's only a day earlier in the conversation. 7, 19 and 20, Jesus told them, there's some of you that want to kill me. And then, and then they, the crowd said, no, you're crazy. You're nuts. There's no one here that wants to kill you. But Jesus is coming back again. He, he has been trying to clarify his identity. He has been trying to challenge them. And the more he does so, and the more sense that he makes, the more hatred grows within them to kill him. And he's just pointing this out. And by the way, was Jesus right? Were, were there people in this crowd wanting at that moment to kill him? Yes, he was. Go look at verse 59. They're going to be picking up stones to throw at him in a few moments. So he's hitting it right on the button. He's reading the audience well. He knows what's going on. But what's really interesting is they're seeking to kill Jesus, not because he was deserving of death, but notice how Jesus phrased it. I'm a man who's told you the truth, which I heard 
from God. In other words, you're killing me for communicating a message from the one you say you love. That makes no sense. In fact, he describes himself in two ways. He says he's told them the truth. Told here is perfect tense. It means that he's told them in the past and what he said remains true in the present. It's not like he told them something that was true and the situation has changed. It still remains true. Everything that he said to them is true. And yet they want to kill him. And then he says, which I heard from God. Again, he's, he's claiming this very message that he's sharing. is coming straight from God. And here's the main difference between his audience and Abraham. Again, going back to Jesus's point, Abraham listened to and responded to faith in Yahweh's words. They didn't. That's the whole point. They're rejecting the message of Yahweh in the person of Jesus Christ. Abraham never did that. And in that way, they're not like Abraham at all. Their claim to be his children is not even bearing, bearing out true. And so what's really interesting, and here's the difference. Abraham is, is, it, it never saw God face-to-face. Jesus's audience is seeing God face-to-face. They're seeing Yahweh face-to-face. And so their rejection, even though it's not like Abraham, it's much worse than Abraham because now they've got verifiable and validating proofs through the signs and wonders, and they're still rejecting him. They're plotting to kill him. This is the claim that Jesus is going to make, okay? He's going to say, this is your behavior. And not only is your behavior not like Abraham, guess who it reminds me of? And that's when we get to verse 44. He's going to say, it's not Abraham. You're of your father, the devil. You're doing, you're a chip, you are a chip off the old block. It just ain't the block you're thinking of. It's a different block around the corner and down the street a little bit, right? That's where you're from. Abraham did not do this. This is what he says. And then notice Jesus again says, you do the deeds of your father. So Abraham's definitely not your father in in a spiritual sense. You do the deeds of your father. Who is the father? Jesus still hasn't said. He's kind of saving that for verse 44. Uh, Again, Abraham just did not possess the type of hatred for Yahweh that Jesus's audience did. In fact, we know that Abraham humbly responded to the words of Yahweh. He took correction from Yahweh when he blatantly disobeyed him. You remember uh, the time that he took Hagar, his servant girl, and fathered a child through her, and then he loved Ishmael. Of course, he would love his son. But Sarah said, you need to put the slave woman out along with her son. And he was like, oh, this is terrible. I cannot believe she would say that. And God said, listen to your wife. Cast out the bondwoman and her son. And Abraham took the Lord's correction and did exactly that, even though it was very difficult on him emotionally. We know that Abraham oftentimes to save his own life pawned off his wife to a couple of kings. Remember those stories? He did that twice, by the way. And yet he took the correction from the Lord. And so Abraham had this way of being humbly uh, willing to receive correction in light of additional revelation or in light of correction of a truth that he understood or, or a, a pointing out of, that, hey, you had a bad evaluation here. You were just really off here. He took it humbly and responded instead of trying to justify himself. And this is the way we all should approach the word of God in our life. It should just be a manner of thinking. In fact, when someone points out that you're wrong about something biblically, you should not fight with that person. You should actually consider what they have to say. They might be doing you a gracious favor, communicating something that God wants you to see, but you've never seen because you got a blind spot. And you know what a blind spot is by definition? Something you can't see. I mean, I know that's simple, but it's something you can't see. So if someone is willing to take 
the initiative to point out something that is helpful to you that you cannot see, we ought to be giving them a hug, not a slug to the face. And oftentimes that's exactly how we handle correction. We're like, how dare they say that to me? Do they know? Oh, never mind. I'm not supposed to ask that question. Don't they know who I am? Yeah, they know who you are. They see your blind spots. They're trying to help you. They love you. They're not trying to harm you. And see, Jesus's audience took everything that Jesus was doing as a threat to them. Instead of humbly considering that God may be revealing something to them and and maybe using methods that they wouldn't normally agree with, which is, i.e., healing on the Sabbath. They They just had a whole hang up on that, didn't they? And that's what they used to evaluate Jesus. Not to say, maybe my interpretation of the Sabbath is wrong. Maybe I'm not seeing this correctly. In fact, I would just encourage you to adopt into your vocabulary anytime you're going into a conflict situation to start the conversation with, I may not be seeing this correctly, but if you just start with that statement, it just communicates humility, that you're not the all-knowing human being that we oftentimes think that we are. And we, we evaluate everyone else's motives. And anyways, I'm getting off track. So let's keep going. Uh, Jesus says, you do the deeds of your father. Again, he's inference. Uh, He's inferencing a father, but he hasn't identified who that is. They're probably in their minds still thinking, why does he keep saying that? He said, we're not like Abraham, but he said, we're doing the deeds of our father. That is Abraham. And there's probably some confusion going on. But what he's talking about is not their physical patriarch, but their spiritual patriarch. We're going to get there. In fact, when you you, you look through here, there's some, some points of irony here as Jesus is building up here. Number one, Uh, As I mentioned earlier, he's saying this to the elite religious leaders of his day. And what he's telling them is, you're more like Satan than they were like Abraham. So so I've got two comparisons up here for you, Jewish religious leader of the day. Are you more like Satan or are you more like Abraham? How many of them do you think would say they were more like Satan than Abraham? Zero. They'd all say, oh, we're more like Abraham. We're just like Abraham. We're, We're sons of Abraham. We follow Abraham. And Jesus is saying, no, you're more like Satan. You're more like the captain of lies and, and as we'll see, the, the source of murderous intent. And, you know, one of the things that we learn about Abraham is, and we just kind of mentioned some of them, he does some carnal licentious things in his lifetime. I mean, slept with a slave girl, had a baby, fathered a child out of wedlock, gave his wife up to a king's harem twice to save his own life, right? There's other things as we look in the life of Abraham And these guys might have been involved in those kind of things as well. We don't know. We're assuming that they're religiously pure, but they may not be. But it's really interesting because Jesus's main criticism of his audience is religious carnality. And I want that to sink in for a little bit because our culture is so overwhelmingly focused on licentious carnality that we give religious carnality a total pass. In fact, We would rather be around somebody who's religiously carnal than someone who's licentiously carnal. And I'm not saying we need to go hang out at the bar and get drunk. I'm not saying that at all. But it is fascinating when you look at the life of Jesus Christ, who he reserved his words of hardest and harshest criticism for. It wasn't the prostitutes. It wasn't the tax collectors. It wasn't the licentiously sinful people of the day. In fact, he tried, he sought to befriend them and to give them a message because what you're going to find over time, people who are trapped in licentious sin often want out of licentious sin. They may claim that they're enjoying it, but tell me one alcoholic that doesn't wish that they weren't an alcoholic. 
Alcoholism will destroy lives. And they can act like they're Mr. You know, good time Charlie on a Friday night at a bar, but no one sees the tears that they cry when their wife's packing up for the eighth time leaving the house. They don't see the tears that they cry when their grown children will no longer talk to them. They don't see that. We just see, oh, good time, Charlie. We, we just view alcoholism like an episode of Cheers. Hey, Norm, you know, kind of deal. That's not what it's about. Sometimes those people need understanding. Sometimes those people need hope. They don't need to be judged. But then you get the religiously carnal, and some of them need to get knocked upside the head, spiritually speaking. They need to be shaken. They need to be woken up because they think a little too highly of themselves. And I hate to tell them God doesn't think highly of them. He thinks highly of his son and what his son accomplished for them. And that's where he is completely satisfied. And that's where all of us need to be completely satisfied. You know, it's great that you've taught Sunday school for 40 years. Here's a sticker. Here's a medal. Congratulations. We appreciate your service. But you know, in the grand scheme of things, that's not going to get you one inch, one inch closer to heaven than if you didn't even attend church for 40 years. Because entrance into heaven is all about what the son did and what the son accomplished. And the second you bump the spotlight off of him, you just took the, the spotlight off the, the main actor in the show. And quite frankly, no one came to see you. We came to see Jesus Christ. And that's the whole point of the gospel. And so they were messing this up. They were religiously carnal. And, and what I mean by that is specifically with this audience, they claim to be representing God at the same time rejecting God's message and messenger. What a hypocrisy. I mean, religiously carnal people are the, are the biggest hypocrites in the world. They're the absolute biggest hypocrites in the world. They can't even keep all their laws and legalism straight for themselves. And then guess what happens when you call them out on it? They justify why they are hypocrites. It's incredible. So I believe Jesus is shaking these guys' tree a little bit. I believe he's trying to get their attention. Does it work? I think it works. Let's look at where they go next. Frustration's boiling over. They haven't, uh, again, they know he's criticizing him. They haven't quite figured out how he's criticizing him. But it's kind of, they, they uh, any Karate Kid fans in here? Any Karate Kid? Okay. It's their Cobra Kai dojo right here. It's strike first, strike hard, no mercy, sir. Remember, remember that in the Cobra? Okay, so the five of you that are Karate Kid fans, you remember that. The point is this, they're frustrated. It's boiling over. They want to hit Jesus hard before he hits them hard. That's the point. Hit him first, hit him hard. This is what they do and what they say at the end of verse 41. It's actually pretty, pretty big slam. Remember again, first century, your daddy jokes, ooh, crossing the line. This is, this is bad. This is what they said to him. We were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. This comment here, I, I'm, I take it a certain way. Let me just tell you the other way it can be taken. Some commentators take it, that they were just saying, this was their way of saying that they were a purebred Jew without any Gentile blood. In other words, um, there was this common thought that, that when the Jews returned from captivity in Babylon, that many uh, unorthodox Jews started intermarrying with Gentiles, and then there was this impure blood introduced. And these guys are saying, if you check our heritage, our, our blood is completely pure. We were not born in fornication, or we don't have Gentile blood in our body. So that could be one interpretation, that they're basically saying we're purebred Jews, and, and we've got one Father God. I actually 
think it's more of a critical and scandalous claim about Jesus's earthly origins. Because I believe at this time, they began to research Jesus. I began, they began to figure out where, did this, where is this guy coming from? What's his story? Where did he grow up? And somewhere along the line, I think they bumped into his virgin birth story. And they probably responded like the vast majority of the people in the world of that day and said, well, wait a minute. When my parents taught me the birds and the bees, when they had the talk with me, it didn't work that way. Like they're, you know, without getting too graphic, because there's some probably that haven't had that talk. It takes two to tango, right? So it's, it, it's not just this, that doesn't make sense. That's, that's a made up story. And so they may have been criticizing there. In fact, remember Joseph, he even needed an angelic revelation to believe it. I mean, he loved Mary. He, I'm sure he wanted to take her story, but he's like, oh, man, I don't know how that works, you know? Well, it only works when the Spirit of God overshadows your betrothed wife. That's the only way it works. And he prophesied that he was going to do it. You know, um, even years later, there was a, there was a story developed by, by, the, by uh, Jewish people who had rejected Jesus. And they had actually developed this story that Mary had been unfaithful to Joseph with a Roman soldier named Panthera during her betrothal period to Joseph, and that Jesus was a product of this adulterous union. That's so this is where I think that they're going. And, and, and the implication is this. Jesus, who do you think you are questioning our pedigree, telling us that we have a different father than Abraham when your pedigree is terrible? You know, it's like, it, it'd be like a, a graduate from Harvard and Princeton showing up and dropping their resume on the table and the, and the hiring manager, no offense to University of West Georgia, we sent a lot of money there uh, actually right now with three kids, but... Um, no offense, but, it, but the hiring manager just has a bachelor's degree from the University of West Georgia. And he's like, ah, I, don't, I don't think your background's going to quite make up. That Harvard and Princeton person would go nuts. Like, who do you think you are? Go West, go Wolves. I mean, I, I had Harvard, Princeton, you know, upper level degrees. And who are you to question my background? This is kind of, I think, what's going on here. Jesus, you got a questionable pedigree. Why are you challenging our heritage and lineage and patriarchy? And then they make this statement, which is so fascinating because I told you earlier, religious carnality will make the biggest hypocrite out of you. When you're a legalist, you just join the realm of hypocrisy. We're already hypocrites. We don't need legalism to help us out. Legalism is just going to expose you for the way that we naturally think, and we're just not consistent. That's part of the thing that the Spirit of God wants to produce in our life when we're walking by means of Him and relying upon Him. He wants to produce consistency. It's called faithfulness. It's a fruit of the Spirit. You don't have it when you're a legalist. You're completely inconsistent. And if you want any proof of that, parents, think of all the times you disciplined your children, and now you think back, man, I should have been a little harder there. I should have been a little easier there. I, I got so upset about this. That was dumb. And then I didn't get upset about this, and I should have. We're hypocrites. We, we're inconsistent, and that's true in our spiritual lives as well. And so they're going to say something here that's getting completely hypocritical. And and what's interesting is they say, we have one father, God, right now, continually, we possess God. Okay, Jesus, you don't like the Abraham card? All right, you're forcing me to pull out the ace. All right, boom. One father, God himself, which is a huge statement actually for this uh, group to to make. And and, and again, in, in light of what they're saying to Jesus, it's like, we've got one father, you, Jesus, we're not sure, biological, adoptive. How many, how many dads you got? 
It's kind of the idea. So they're, they're really going after him here. Now, what's ironic about this is they were just saying that Abraham was their father. And again, they're bringing out their ace card here. They're literally trying to take the spiritual high road on Jesus. You see, you're born of fornication. We're, we have a spiritual heritage, right? They're, they're kind of holding this over him. Now, here's what's really ironic. Because if, if you remember when we were in John 5, okay, one of the things that infuriated them against Jesus was what? Well, not only that he had healed on the Sabbath, but John 5, 18 tells us, let's read it. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him, Jews being the Jewish religious leaders, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said, notice what Jesus said, God was his father, making himself equal with God. And so earlier, they were going to kill Jesus over saying that, and now here they are claiming the same thing. See, it's okay for them, but it's not, it wasn't okay for Jesus. In fact, that was a murderous event that Jesus needed to die for, and yet here they are claiming to have God as their father. So you can see the hypocrisy that comes through uh, religious carnality. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, and Jesus keeps doing this through the con- Okay, if God were your father, let's assume that's true. This would also be true. You would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Again, first class condition. If God were your father, let's assume that he was. Okay? For argument's sake, let's, let's say that what you're saying is true, then this would be the natural outflow. In fact, he says, you would love me. It's the Greek word agapao. It's agape. It's, it's indicating a direction of will. It's, it's a love where you are willing, making an active volitional choice to love in spite of attendant circumstances. In other words, it's unconditional. That's why we say this kind of love is unconditional. The idea is that they would say, oh, Jesus is from God. Whatever Jesus says, we agree with. Whatever he does, we're in favor of. That would be the idea of unconditionally, willfully choosing to believe what he's saying and relying uh, upon him. Basically, Jesus is just giving their comment credit, but he's saying, if this was true, though, like you say it is, you would love me. So if God was truly your father, then this would be the natural result. This is what he's saying here. And this is, and what's so ironic is their response is clearly the opposite. Okay, this is the way it should look, but this is the way it actually looks. That's a problem. And this is a key indicator, as Jesus is pointing out, their true spiritual heritage. In fact, if they would just listen to what he's saying and just say, okay, right now you feel like killing me, who is that more like, God or Satan? If they would just listen to that argument, they'd be like, oh, yeah, something's not right here. This isn't passing the smell test, right? Our claims don't match up with what we're saying. But they weren't even willing to consider this. But Jesus is actually trying to communicate this. Again, if God sent him, they loved God. God was their father. They would love God's messenger, and they would love God's message through his messenger. They were the exact opposite. So why should they love him? Jesus is going to tell them why they should. First reason, he proceeded forth and came from God. Proceeded forth and came from God. Proceeded forth means he came out from, that's his origin, and he arrived on earth with the full blessing of God. This is what he's saying to these guys. That's why they should love him. Jesus is basically saying his origin's heaven. He's come from God. He's on mission from God. That alone should say, we, we love you, Jesus. <laughs> we love you. We want to hear from you. We want to know what God has to say to us. We want to know what God is doing in our present day. But they had rejected them. And, and in fact, if they were persuaded by the fact that he was from God, they should have just 
been persuaded that what Jesus was saying was true. This is kind of the argument here. In fact, we know that if you reject the send one, you've rejected the sender. If a country refuses to receive an ambassador from another country, they are rejecting that country. They are doing a a great uh, dishonorable thing and not accepting the ambassador. In fact, for many countries, they would view that as a hostile act of war. Because it's not about the, the messenger, it's about the one who sent the messenger ultimately. And again, this is what Jesus is pointing out. If this is true, if God were your father, you would receive his messenger. You claim to love him, but you don't love his messenger? That doesn't make a lot of sense. Jesus also says, nor have I come of myself. This word come he uses, it describes the process of coming, not arriving, but the process of coming. And the idea is he didn't come on his own initiative. He didn't just haul off one day and decide to show up. He's actually there on mission. He's been sent, as he, as he says there, he's been sent. So basically, Jesus is saying he didn't authorize his mission single-handedly. He's not some rogue, independent agent coming through. In contrast, he was sent by the Father. Interesting enough, that word sent is the Greek word apostello. It goes with apostle. He was sent on mission. He was sent for a purpose, for a reason to communicate. And this is why I think Jesus is, is repeating himself. In fact, does it feel like Jesus is repeating himself a million times in this passage? Does it just seem like he's, he's kind of saying the same thing over and over and over again? And oftentimes, when do we do that in a conversation? It's when we're frustrated because the person isn't hearing what we're saying. In fact, oftentimes, we just give up. We're just like, okay, yeah, hey, have a nice day. You know, it's like, I'm out of here. Like, I'm out of energy. Jesus is not out of energy here. He just keeps trying. And I, and I love what he says in the next verse. He's going to ask a rhetorical question, and he's going to answer it. But you can kind of see, if you want to call it righteous frustration, that's probably a good way to put it, because I think he's repeating himself. I think he's challenging them, and they're just not getting it. And this is what he says uh, in verse 43. He says, why do you not understand my speech? Again, it's a rhetorical question. Notice he answers it, because you are not able to listen to my word. Now, this word understand is a, describes a process of coming to know. That is like, why aren't you coming to know that what I'm saying is true? Why aren't you coming to know what I'm telling you? Why aren't you learning from this is kind of the idea. In fact, what he was saying in his words, what he was showing in his actions, the signs and wonders, they should have been convincing. In fact, this crowd in particular should have said, okay, two plus two equals four right? But they were saying two plus two equals six. And you're like, what? How did you get that answer? They weren't putting the connection from the Old Testament to what they were seeing in front of their very eyes. The very Old Testament prophecies that they had memorized and knew that the Messiah would do. Now he's doing them. And because he's not doing them the right way or the way that they thought he should be doing it, they just reject him completely. Everything is right there. And Jesus is like, how do you not learn? How are you not learning? How are you not putting this stuff together is what he says. Well, he doesn't give them a chance to answer because he answers it for them. Notice the word because. He says, you're not able. Able means to have power by virtue of one's ability or resources. Now, oftentimes, verbs in the Greek, there's a couple of times where the middle voice and the passive voice, they're the same word. You have to work with that in context and see, is is he talking a middle voice or a passive voice? Let me race through both of them. Either one of them are fine in this passage, but the middle voice, it's reflexive in quality, okay? Talking about this word able, it would indicate that their rejection of Jesus and refusal to listen to what he has said, 
That's what's producing an inability to hear him or listen to him in a present. In other words, they're choosing to reject him and that decision is coming back on them in the form of not being able to understand what he's saying right now. Past rejection is now impacting present reception. That would be kind of a middle uh, aspect of this verb. If it's passive, it means that this inability is acted upon them from an outside source. It's not their decision. Something out here is acting on them to provide them with the inability. Now, what would that be? That's the question when you go to a passive. What, what it would be acting on them to give them an inability? Well, uh, the Calvinist or the Reformed theologian would say it's God acting. God's not allowing them to understand. That God is not allowing them to understand the process. That's what the Calvinist or Reformed theologian would say. I disagree with that. I, th- I just think contextually that doesn't fit here. I think, again, it's, it's past rejection is the outside source that's acting upon them to make them unable to understand it in the present. So either passive or middle, you get to the same place. The idea is Jesus's audience no longer listening to him. They haven't been listening to him for a long time. And because they've already made up their mind to reject him, they're not able to understand what he's saying in the present. They don't even want to. They're not even trying. Do you know that we do the same thing in arguments in our day? Have you ever had an argument? Okay, maybe that's strong, a disagreement with someone. Some people don't, I never argue. I just disagree strongly. I'm like, what's an argument? Okay, so anyways, you ever had an argument with someone and they're, they're making their point or they're countering something you said? You're not even listening to what they're saying. You're already forming the next thing you're gonna say. See, we do the same thing. And in that sense, you don't have the ability to understand what they're saying. Why? Because you're not listening. You're not even considering what they have to say. And I've seen some wives elbow some husbands. Easy now. That's, uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. We all do that, though. We get into these situations where we're so convinced that we're right. We, don't, we stop listening. And in that moment, we're unable to take in any additional information. This is where Jesus' audience is at now. So he says, why don't you understand? Let me tell you why you don't understand. And now we have the mic drop moment. The, the, the father that Jesus has been talking about all this time, he's going to tell him exactly who he is in verse 44. This is the father he's been referring to. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. Now, this is a pretty hardcore statement to make to this group. In fact, the way he says it, you are of your father, the devil, right now, in this moment, your father is the devil, not Abraham, not God. That's a big statement to a group of people who hate him. In fact, he uses this Greek word of, it's, it's translated of, it's Greek preposition ek, it means out of or out from. And he's just describing the source from where they're living their lives. They're living their life from a demonic source. Now, to tell a religious person that is probably to provide the greatest criticism that you can provide to that person. Because religious people think they're doing what? They're doing God's service. Man, they're, they're a man of God. What, you know, I'm a rabbi. I'm a man of God. How, how dare you say that I'm living my source from a demonic source, this is what Jesus is telling them. And and, and what he's pointing to is he knows how they feel. He knows what they want to do. And he's saying that comes from a demonic source, not a godly source. Paul could have used the same lesson in Acts 9. In fact, when he gets confronted by Jesus on the road to Damascus, what is he doing? 
He had just gotten permission to go rip Christians out of their home, take them to prison, kill some in the name of Yahweh. And had he stopped, said, wait a minute, Yahweh's kind of not into that kind of stuff, but Satan is. I'm more like Satan than Yahweh. And this is what Jesus is pointing out here. Now, what's super interesting, as I mentioned before, again, this, these were highly religious people, not immoral people. And again, contrast Jesus's life. He was always critical of the highly religious people and less critical of the blatantly immoral people. It wasn't like he wanted people to go on and sin. He just was more willing to be uh, gracious with them and to provide solution to them. Whereas the highly religious people just needed to shake them shake their tree a little bit because they just aren't thinking correctly. They're not taking in spiritual revelation anymore. And so the desires of your father, he says, you want to do. Now, the desires described here are, means a great longing, a, a lust even, if you will. There's a, there's a strength uh, in this word communicated that, that the exact things that the, that the devil wants to do is the very th- exact things that you want to do. Could you imagine if someone came up to you today and you had just been serving in a way and you felt really good, like you were serving the Lord, you felt really fulfilled. And they said, all of your service is being sourced in the devil and you're actually just doing what he wants you to do. Man, that would be breathtaking. That would take your breath. It'd probably make you angry. It'd make me angry, right? And you can see what he's saying there. He, this is going to rev them up. In fact, he uses the word will here, uh, that, that word want, actually. It's the Greek word thelo. It means to will or to purpose. This is their active will. He says, you guys are deciding to do the exact things that the devil wants to do. You guys are aligning your lives with the devil and Satan. And here they are claiming to be sons of Abraham and sons of God. And he's saying, no, man, you're on the opposite side of the chasm. Like you're just on the wrong, you know, you're in the wrong zip code from where you guys think you are. And so these longings and cravings, again, present tense is something they want to do right now. He keeps telling them, you want to kill me. And so he's basically telling them that they have the desire to fulfill the will of the devil. And, and there's two actions that he identifies to, to tie that argument together. Here it is. They want to murder him. And he says, you know, murder was sourced from the devil. So if you want to murder me, that's where it's coming from because the devil was a murderer from the beginning. And we can just trace history for this, right? Satan effectively introduced death into the world through his temptation of Adam and Eve. He knew God's command. He knew that Adam and Eve would die. He, he knew that that would instigate their death. And yet he encouraged them and deceived them to eat of the tree. And they experienced immediate spiritual death in Genesis 3. And then they experienced physical death in Genesis 5. The devil's a murderer from the very beginning. He didn't even wait too long until the very next generation where he convinces Cain to kill his brother, Abel, via the sin nature. Remember, sin wants to take control of you is what God told Cain. The, the indwelling sin that was implanted there because of the fall now wants to enact and carry out the will of Satan. And we see that played out in the life of Cain, killing his brother. And even as we look through the pages of history, Satan's trying to blind all men, women, and children from the truth of the gospel to cause them to experience eternal death. He is a murderer. He's nothing but a murderer. He gloats and glees in religious people who are trusting in their behavior because he's going to see them in hell one day, and he is proud of that accomplishment. That's all he wants. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. That means you don't, you don't perish the moment that you die. It means that you're in a state of perishing when you don't 
when you haven't trusted the Savior, when you haven't been saved from your sin, you are in a, in a position of perishing. And then notice what it says, who, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine upon them. And do you see what he's trying to blind people from? What's that very next phrase after the God of this age is blinded? He doesn't want them to believe. Because trusting in Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. If you want to add something to that, you wreck the response of the Bible. If you want to add your behavior to that, you won't get to heaven. Because it's not Jesus Christ plus your behavior. It's not Jesus Christ plus your lifestyle. It's Jesus Christ alone. There's a very simple spiritual mathematical equation. Jesus Christ plus your behavior equals eternal death. That's what the Bible teaches. It's not by works. It's not of yourselves, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tell us. You're saved by grace on the basis of what somebody else did for you. Again, keep the spotlight off of yourself. Quit bumping the spotlight. It just belongs on one man. It's real easy, and yet it's so simple to bump the spotlight. You know that when you have Jesus Christ plus faith, you know what that equation equals? Eternal life. God's solution, you trusting in God's solution. God is satisfied with Jesus Christ. You're satisfied with Jesus Christ. That equals eternal life. And that's why 1 John 5 doesn't say if you have the son plus good behavior, you have life. It says simply, if you have the son, you have life. But if you don't have the son, you don't have life, but the wrath of God abides on you. This is the whole point of the gospel. And they're, they're missing this. And Satan is trying to take as many people with him to hell as possible. And one of his biggest tools, unfortunately, is religion. That's what's tragic. One of his biggest tools is behaviorism, because it sounds right. It sounds like you got to be good to go to heaven. It sounds like you got to try to go to heaven. And yet Romans 4, 5 says it to the one that doesn't work. To the one who doesn't work, but believes on the one who justifies the ungodly. You know what kind of people are going to be in heaven? Not good people, ungodly people. Ungodly people who have trusted in a good Savior, a perfect Savior who completed the work for them. That's the only people that are going to be in heaven. Good people aren't going to be in heaven, but a good Savior is going to be there who knows how to save bad people. That's how that's going to work out for us. The devil just wants to murder and take as many people into a perishing state as possible. The second thing is Jesus's audience were deceivers. They were deceiving others. Again, religious hypocrisy makes you a deceiver. You're trying to pump out a life that looks good, even though you care nothing about whether or not your life is genuine. It's, they're liars. They don't stand in the truth. And one of the reasons for that is given in the next phrase, because there's no truth in the devil. And I want you to think about this super interesting, strong statement, because it's not, what it is saying is the devil does not stand in truth uh, not because he chooses. Wow, there's a lot of negations there. I'm starting to. That made sense when I wrote it down. Here's let me simplify this. He does not stand in the truth, not because he chooses not to, but rather he is unable to because of who he is. You know, oftentimes we talk about God and he's he's always loving and he's always just and he's always holy because that's just who he is. He doesn't put on a holy hat for a day and act holy. He is holy by very character. Satan is the exact opposite. He is a liar. He does not stand in the truth because he can't. That is a super strong statement. It's not that Satan tells the truth once in a while. It's literally he doesn't even possess the truth. 
How many in here, don't even raise your hand, I know the answer. How many of you here have been hurt by someone else's lie in your lifetime? How many of you have been hurt or damaged by, by a lie or deception by somebody? That is not sourced from God, that's sourced from the devil himself. And that's exactly what he's all about all the time. And another reason, it says when he speaks, he speaks from his own resources. He's a liar, he's a father of it, he's the originator of it. Why is this? Because he is present tense right now. Satan is just as garbage today as he was 2,000 years ago. And he was 4,000 years before that in the garden. Just a total, you know, wrecker of people. Just a total murderer and a liar to get his ways. In fact, it's interesting because two of these are, are the Ten Commandments, lying and murder. And that's what Jesus calls out here. And when we look at the Ten Commandments, uh, we know that they describe the character of God Satan is, Satan's character is the opposite of the Ten Commandments. You could put it that way. If you just kind of look through there, it's just the opposite. And that's his character. And Jesus is saying, this is what you guys are like right now. You're of your father, the devil. You're more like him than you're like the audience. Well, once again, Jesus's audience is not going to respond well to this. Okay, this is, as we say around here sometimes, this is going to go over like a pregnant pole vaulter, right? Um, so it's just not going to go over very well. Or easy. They're not going to like what he has to say here. Next week, next two weeks, we'll kind of finish out chapter eight, and we'll kind of just keep looking at this dialogue as they keep arguing about paternity. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. I'm just grateful for the Lord Jesus. Again, just even in this passage, even though he's saying hard things, we see his heart. We see his love for, for, for these men who hate him and are angry with him. We see the way that he's shaking them a little bit to, to think and consider things differently. And Lord, I know there's things in our life that, that you want to adjust and bump in our thinking as it relates to your word, as it relates to the way that we're living, as it relates to the decisions that we're making. May we be more like Abraham than Jesus's audience here. May we just be ready to be to challenged and welcome that challenge so that we can be more in align with your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.